Episode 150 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the legendary American actor, comedian and filmmaker Mel Brooks. In a career now spanning seven decades, he has created some of the best-loved comedy movies, including The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, History of the World Part 1 and Spaceballs. My interview with him took place in 1991, in London where he'd come to promote Life Stinks, which he co-wrote, produced, directed and starred in. Is this an idea you've had for some time? Well, I, I didn't know what to do next. I've run out, I ran out of genres. I ran out of movies. There's no, nothing else to satirize. I thought I might do a documentary on 16th century Persian vases. And uh, when I brought the idea up to 20th Century Fox, they said, we don't see it. We can't see it yet. And uh, they didn't think there was a lot of money in a, in, a, in a documentary about 16th century Persian vases. I said, but it's quite different from what I've been doing. They said, yes, yeah, just a little too different. you know." So they said, uh, what we would like you to do is either Blazing Saddles 3, The Search for Blazing Saddles 2, or Old Frankenstein. Either one would be fine. I said, well, what you would like me to do and what I would like me to do are two different things. So I said, I'm not going to make any more Mel Brooks movies unless I have a good idea. I'm simply not going to work because when I began, it was show business. Show meaning quasi-art, semi-art, some artistic endeavor, show business. Now, you don't hear the... You don't hear the show very clearly. It's like the emphasis is on the second word, so it's show business. Uh, how's show business today? You don't hardly hear the show anymore. So where did this idea come from? So I decided not to make a movie, really. I decided not to make, not to make another Mel Brooks movie. No, no, reason to, no reason to make it. I didn't want to just do another movie. Just be, I didn't want to go to work. I wanted to go to art if I could. So I waited for an idea, and I didn't get any. My car broke down. I was in downtown L.A., and I saw a woman living out of a cardboard box. I couldn't believe it. First, I thought it was a little girl. Little girls play house. They have little dishes, and, you know, little plastic dishes. But this was a woman playing house for real in an alley. And it was very intriguing. I talked to her, and she was a little batty, just a little batty, a little nuts. But she explained her her ruination, her degradation. She's a normal person. She was married. Husband came from Topeka, Kansas with her in 1989. Uh, no work in Topeka. No, got a job in L.A., was fired, began drinking, taking drugs, uh, abusing his wife. He abandoned her. She couldn't pay the rent. She went on welfare. That ran out. They threw her into a flop house. Men began hitting on her. She decided she'd rather be dead in the streets than be a victim. It's a very powerful story. Hardly a comedy, you know? But I never forgot her. I mean, she was just a valiant and heroic human being. So six months later, Rudy DeLuca and Ron Clark and Steve Haberman come into my office with this idea. Let's make, we're having a depression, let's make a depression comedy. I said, that's a good idea. Great idea. 
So we, 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 we saw all of the Frank Capra pictures. We began to do our homework. Then we saw Sullivan's Travels, very interesting, about a director. It's a Preston Sturgis movie uh, starring Joel Gray. I know you don't know. A Joel, uh, I know Joel Gray. Gray. It's from Cabaret. Oh, no. Joel this McRae. is Joel McRae, the cowboy oh, star. Joel McRae. And he, uh, he plays a Hollywood director, interesting story, who's making a movie about hobos and leaves the Hollywood studio to investigate. So I said, yeah, that's an interesting idea. But Hollywood, nobody cares about Hollywood. So I said, why don't we make, uh, yeah, I'll pour a joke. It's okay. Leave it in the, the hot stuff. Why don't we make this a more Dickensian story? What would Dickens have done? Well, he would have had a very rich man. His fish out of water would have been a very rich man living in Hogarth's London, like little Oliver Twist, who came from good, good beginnings. Where did the name Goddard Bolt came from? Was that just because of the pun about just call me God if you want it? Yeah, it came from my own head. Bolt because he was a very dynamic guy, and I figured he was like a bolt of lightning. And uh, Goddard because, uh, I don't know, there's Jean-Luc Goddard, and Goddard is a very Chaucerian, old-fashioned English name. And also, for short, the whole business of being God for short appealed to me. When Goddard Bolt at the beginning is dropped off as part of the bet on the side streets, yeah. was that actually filmed in a real-life street with real-life hobos around? Yes. The, that's uh, what it looked like. It actually looked very realistic. It, looked, it was real. The streets were real. The garbage was real. The smell, the filth was real. But the, the people on the streets were actors. They were extras. Uh, you know, atmosphere, playing, playing the... We could not use the real inhabitants of the slum because the unions forbade it. They were not union members. What I did to get around that was I hired all of them. I hired every one of the homeless that was standing around watching us shoot and made them part of the crew. Made them load and unload the trucks and set up our lunches and eat with us. And, and they were really everything to us. They were our friends. They were our technical advisors. And they loved working on the film. And we had a very special screening for them two weeks ago at the State Theatre. That must have been very moving, wasn't it? It was very moving. It was mm. very touching. And uh, no press, no photographers, just for the homeless themselves. And what was their reaction to it? They loved it. They cried, they cheered, they laughed. It was the best screening I've ever had in my life. And then after it, they, they, they threw me on their shoulders and marched me around the theatre. It was just great. Was the bag lady that you were talking about earlier, was she at that screening no, as well? No, she had disappeared before we even got down here to shoot. And I asked somebody, and and, uh, and he said he was pretty sure that she was going to try it again. I went back to some remnants of her family in Topeka, in Kansas. Mm. Now, the lady that plays the bag lady in the film is Leslie Ann Warren. Yes. Was there ever a chance that your wife, Anne Bancroft, would My wife chose Leslie Ann Warren. She wanted somebody who could dance and somebody who could be funny. We had seen Victor Victoria on, you know, uh, we had rented the video for fun about six months before we did the movie, before we started casting. And uh, she stuck out as a very funny and deliciously compelling, that platinum blonde in Victor Victoria. And then earlier I had seen her dance as Cinderella, and I said, gee, she's, uh, she's got that look of pain in her eye, too. My wife, my wife suggested that she'd be perfect for it. Besides, my wife and I did To Be or Not To Be. And the Anne Bancroft fans didn't know what to make of going to see a Mel Brooks movie. And the Mel Brooks fans did not want to see a serious movie. 
So we, we kind of cue the wrong audiences to come together. We, we, we will. As I move toward my own company, Brooks Films, in that I would be making movies with more texture, more complicated undertones. Then, and the audience perceives that and doesn't call me cornflakes anymore, but calls me roast beef, then maybe I can work with Anne Bancroft. Mm. Is it difficult to work with her and sort of not get accused of nepotism and everything? Well, it's very hard to work with her because then I come home and nobody's cooked, you see. So it's no good. What about as far as yourself? I mean, you're the writer, producer, director, everything. Is this because you like to be in control of everything? Well, it's because I don't like to pay other people's salaries. So, I mean, I've done, I don't even pay ushers. You see me in the theaters with a little flashlight walking up and down the aisles. I do everything. No, I, I do it. I do too much. I will, I will move back out of one of those important key positions. I do too yeah. much. I will give more. I will certainly write and direct, but there's no need for me to, to act, except for maybe uh, small supporting roles, if necessary. I would prefer to be more in charge of what goes on in the set. When you're acting, when you're in the middle of a scene, and you're abandoned to it and lost in it, you cannot, for the life of you, tell what's going on. How do you direct yourself? That must well, be it's the little video that's attached to the camera. So we watch the scene. Watch the scene very carefully next, after we sh shoot it, you know. What about the producing side of things? Do you enjoy that? Or there's, no, there's no getting away from it. If you don't, for every film personality, whether it be Woody Allen or Mel Brooks or any innovator, there's going to be a circle of people around him. And sometimes they don't know their power and they don't know their needs and they become very powerful and very controlling. And they often move into, uh, into the producing area, like Woody Allen has, his agents became his producers. But what they do, the executive producers really control everything. What they call a producer today is just a stooge, he's a line producer, a glorified production manager. The real producers are the deal makers and the ones that deal with the studio and the ones that have some say in the marketing and the ones that have some say in the budget. These are the ones that count. These are the producers that count. So there are a lot of people, because I'm the cute little guy with the jester's hat, there are a lot of aggressive, greedy, monolithic, powerful people who would not be content just to advise me and guide me they want to control me and also control some of my fortune. So, and I don't need them because they're not very... I haven't found... I really haven't found someone for me who's a better producer than I am. I know how much I need to make a movie and I know more about how to market it than, than most people. If, I, if they'll give me the money to market it. Mm. You know, that's, that's very tough today. You mentioned but, Woody Allen. Are you a great fan of his? Yes, I love Woody Allen. I think he's, uh, I think he's one of the last remaining true talents in our business. Are you friends as well? Well, yeah, we don't, he lives in New York and I'm, I live in California, so we, we really don't get a chance to see each other, but we, we met each other many years ago when he was a neophyte writer on the show of shows. I was already an established writer on this magnificent television show starring Sid Caesar, Imogene Coca, Carl Reiner, and Howard Morris. Howard Morris is in my film. He's the little guy who plays Sailor. Anyway, Woody, he adored me because he, he thought I had the secret. Uh, and he would often walk me home, even though he lived uh, in the village and I lived all the way up on Fifth Avenue. 
Now he lives quite near where I used to live on Fifth Avenue. He's doing very well now. It seems to be the two of you every few years come up with a classic film. Well, you know why? It's because uh, we've carved out our own niche. We've made our own fortresses. And we make movies for reasonable sums. If we made movies for 50 to $60 million, we wouldn't be in the business anymore because we can't compete with Terminator 2. We can't bring in two or $300 million. But we can always assure our studios that failing everything, they're going to get their money back. And if they have some, some confidence in us, they'll make a, a tidy profit. Because this film hasn't done as well as you might have hoped in America, has it? Well, it will. It will. It will. Mm. This, is, this film reminds me of the producers a great deal. The producers never opened. It just put putted along somehow. And it was really a word-of-mouth film. And little by little, it got even. And then it went into the black, and then, it, then there were new windows of opportunity that opened for it, like a hotel vision. And airlines, and, and finally, it's made a quite, quite a tidy sum. I think the same thing will happen in America, because this is a very low-budget picture, and 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 I, I have every confidence that the studio will not only get its money back, but will get three times its money if they have the patience to wait out the video and wait out all the ancillary markets. Because you have a very fixed following, don't you? As well, yes. A great oh yeah. Following. The, my following doesn't rush to the movies. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. They're um. They take their time. They take their time. They do. I think my following is basically Jewish dentists. Every Jewish dentist in America will go, eventually will see a Mel Brooks film. That I can count on. I can't count on Gentile dentists. And, and I don't know what they're doing, these Gentile dentists. I mean, they, they never work on the back of the mouth. They're always polishing the front teeth. Never mind, that's my own private. How devoted are you to your craft? Are you constantly working on something? Always. If I'm not working on a Mel Brooks film, I'm working on a Brooks films yeah, film. Because you're so, a producer of yeah, other films. Yeah. So well. I'm 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 very busy. I'm very busy. So what I'm very proud. On? I think, I think this is kind of a uh, strange thing. I kind of snuck over, to uh, a little way towards Brooks films with, Life Stinks, because it's 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 uh, got something to say about the human condition, and it's hysterically funny at the same time. It's like Mash. It's it's a lot like. Uh, I like Altman's mash because it's uh, on, on the periphery there's a lot of serious stuff going on there and there's there's war there's kids being killed there's operations but in the center center stage he's got Donald Sutherland and, and Elliot Gould jumping around being very funny Mel Brooks has got Mel Brooks in the center jumping around with Teddy Wilson with Howie Mars with Leslie Ann Warren with all these characters being you know dancing like a little black boy in the streets being very funny I think you could see on the edges that we're saying something about the mm. human condition. But one wonders, therefore, that it might prick the American conscience so much that perhaps that's why it's been quite a slow starter in America. Yes, yes, exactly. But it will gain, slowly but surely, in every city, it will gain its, its one or two theaters that will hang in but there. But do you think it has pricked the American conscience? Yes, yeah, because uh, I'm getting reviews like, uh, we don't need uh, heavy film heavy films from Mel Brooks, we want, uh, you know, they want cornflakes. Mm. My name is synonymous with cornflakes. So, I mean, it's like Heinz Ketchup, cornflakes, Mel Brooks, I got a brand name, you know? Are you and now I, a campaigner for the homeless? Yes, I do. I'm, 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 <laughs> it's true, I'm on the bandwagon. I, there are little groups of us that go down collecting clothing and things, and, um, 
and doing uh, uh, canned food drives and stuff. And my company just donated a, a van so that the, this outreach program that they have down there could pick up all kinds of stuff, bring it down there, and they, they needed a, a van. And uh, we'll see what we can do to uh, to raise uh, uh, whatever monies and uh, whatever clothes, clothing we can get for them. Does it make you feel guilty? Well, I presume you live in relative luxury, and does it make you feel guilty about that? No, Has it changed not, your... no not at all. I worked like a dog to get where I am. I was uh, the fourth child of an incredibly poor family. My family was so poor, the neighbor had to give birth to me. I mean, my mother was too poor to have me. I mean, I really was. We were poverty-stricken. And I worked all my life to achieve some economic parity with the world. And now I've gone on to uh, a, a touch of living, uh, you know, above the average. And I love it. I, I earned it. Can you tell me a little bit So I don't bit feel about, guilty about it. Tell me a little bit about your, your home. You live in California, you say. Yeah. Is it sort of a massive mansion you've lived in for some time? No, no, it's 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 a it's a house, and it's not even in Beverly Hills. I was I'm not allowed to live in Beverly Hills. I'm too short. I, I'm too short and too dark. They're well, like what's well, uh, that supposed to mean? Well, you have to be over five eight and blonde, and uh, I'm not. So that therefore I'm, I can't live in Beverly Hills. You know what I mean? I don't blame them. I like neighborhoods have to keep up their style, lifestyles. I live in Santa Monica, near the sea. Always get a nice breeze. Never need air conditioning. I have. Uh, one guest room, I have one master bedroom, I have uh, a kitchen, I have a living room. Is there just the two of you living there? Just you and Yeah, him? my son, I have, we have our son, right. and he's, uh, he's off to college. All right. Can you now, tell me his name? His, his name is Maximilian, he's, he's 19, 19 yeah. and he's going to uh, college. Right. What's he studying? He's studying history, he's a history major, he All likes right. history. Right. He's been a writer ever since he was nine years old, he likes writing, and he likes writing historical stories and stuff. I think he's going to be a good writer. Do you think he might go into your business? Eventually, yeah. It's, it's between Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks. I mean, the genes. It's in the genes, mm. you know. But does he express any interest in doing that at the moment? Yeah, he does. He talks about it. He talks about it. He, uh, as a matter of fact, he's in a, a Robert Altman movie because Altman wants to, wanted to use him as Max Brooks, as himself, mm. Mel Brooks' son, in a, in a commissary scene. You know what a commissary is? Uh, like the studio luncheon place where everybody meets and somebody comes over uh, I don't know who it is Tim uh, so does, does he look like you? Do, you, do you does he have a stronger resemblance to you than to his mother no thank god he, he looks more, a lot more like his mother I mean if he wanted to be an actor he could do it he's a good looking kid very good looking well, the two of you have been married for a long time 27 years 27 years yeah How? I mean in Hollywood that's something unreal isn't it yeah well the secret of our success is that when we fight we never speak in English to each other because if we speak in English, we'll remember what we said, and we'll be hurtful. So therefore, I speak in kind of a, uh, a broken Romanian. I make it up. And I scream these epithets. I'm not Romanian, neither is she, but, and so I don't understand Romanian, but I make it up. I scream at her in Romanian, and she screams at me in some kind of hillside Italian. I don't know what she's saying. She don't know what I'm saying, but we're getting it out. Do you think you've lasted longer than many people expected you to last? Yes. The late film director, Martin Ritt, you know, who did uh, all those wonderful uh, pictures of the 50s. When, when we met in New York, he said, I give it six weeks. It really, it's, that's what he said. 27 years later, we're still together, so uh, something's working. Mm -hmm. I think as we get uh, a little older, we get a little wiser and more tolerant of each other's uh, needs, faults, what, what have you.
Have you, have you never been troubled by the, the fact you're both involved in show business and never had it almost consuming your lives and threatening them? Yes, we've been every day. Not never, every day we've been troubled by it. We've been troubled by this it, it, because being in show business is, is unstable. You don't have the stability of a nine-to-five job and therefore isolate your leisure time for joy and joyful activities. So you've got to find the joy while you're working and then sometimes you find the joy on the set and away from your wife and that's not so good. Then you come home and the home life seems to be oppressive rather than joyous and so it's very it's complicated. So what sort of a lifestyle do you lead? Do you actually you live quite an exciting well, time? Or? I dress up in a silk bathrobe and walk around from midnight to five in the morning at the at every bar I can find. It's a kaftan, actually, and it's a black and white striped silk. But and serious. I, and I have a bow tie that lights up, and it says, Hi, I'm Mel. And I just hang around bars, pick up people, vomit. They just keep busy every night. No. I mean, well, I was kidding, really. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So away from show business, though, is it quite a calm life you lead and quite a sort of well, we, unexciting it, Away from show, we, we literally ge geographically have to get away. If we can... We make it a religious experience. We spend Christmas in the islands in the Caribbean every uh, winter because our child grew up there with other kids, and it's like an extended family situation. So we get away from we get away from Hollywood. We have a small apartment in New York, and I have kids from a former marriage. Come in, we see them. We, my wife has family in Yonkers. We try to live as as normal a life as we can. We only, we're only in, in L.A. half the year when we're working. The other, other times we try to, uh, to, get, to be on the move and see the world and, and, and go back to our roots. It's Either nourishing to go back to New York. How often do you see the family from your former marriage? Oh, I, I see them six or seven times a year. Right. And what are the children from that marriage? Can you tell I, me I have a Stephanie, and she's uh, about 33 now. And she's married to Michael Jacobs. She lives in West Orange, New Jersey. She's a bit of an intellectual. She's a darling girl. I love her very much. She's very family-oriented. She keeps the family together. And she's uh, delicious to look at and to talk to. And uh, she's a bit of an Anglophile. She went to school here. She went to school in England. And she, uh, so she got hooked on some things like um, biscuits. Well, Scotch does shortbread things, and every time I'm in Harrods, I, I mail her off a, a tin of shortbread, and she's delighted. She's, I get her old copies of, uh, you know, like uh, first editions of Thackeray and stuff like that, and that thrills, really thrills her. And uh, every once in a while, when, when I'm flushed, I, I, uh, I can send, uh, uh, as an anniversary gift to something, she and her husband can come and, and live, live here. But, of course, I, I can't afford for them to live at a nice hotel, so... Are there any other children from, the, from your first marriage? Yes. There's, there's a boy, Nicky, who's just finished his first screenplay. He's 30 years old. He's finished his first screenplay called Pumped, about gyms and what goes on at gyms today. Mm -hmm. G-Y-M-S. Just in case we're talking and it'll come into the tape recorder. And you'll write, gyms, J-I-M-S. And you'll say, what the hell is Nicky writing about gyms for? And then Eddie Brooks who's uh, in his mid-twenties and he's still, uh, he plays guitar, he arranges, he works the keyboard, he works, works at a recording studio in New York, and uh, his dream is to find a group, discover it, record it, market it. So hmm. 
And he will. He will. He's dedicated and he's talented. Now, talking of ages, it was your wife's birthday the other day, or is this week? And she's 60, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, is that She'll a big be 60. deal for her? No. Uh, 50 was a big deal. This one's a lot easier. Mm. Yeah, she's getting more parts now mm. because she's, she's, she's out of that, the young uh, juvenile of, or little lover thing, and now she's getting uh, the more mature, great parts, and it's, it's good. It started with Turning Point. Did you see the situation comedy she did over here? Did you oh, I loved it. I right. thought it was delightful. Because mm -hmm. it went down very well. Yeah, it? yeah, everybody loved it, and it was, yeah. it was, it was a great experience for her. Mm. Are either of you intending to, to work in England again? I don't know, because every time I say I might do She Stoops to Conquer, everybody calls Joe and says, can I be in it? And he, get, he gets hundreds of calls from actors who want to be in the movie. I have an idea. To, uh, I've written a screenplay based on Oliver Goldsmith's restoration comedy called She Stoops right. to Conquer. Great title, great play, great body, sexy, happy, fun, a comedy of errors. And I think I could make a very funny movie of it using, you know, young, a young British cast. Uh, and you'd both be in it? No, no. Right. We, we would, we're not British. You're not? No, Yiddish. Oh, yeah. So, so actually... Now, as, as you mentioned, you, you've both won Academy Awards. Do, they, yeah. do awards mean much to you now? You've won so many. Well, no, not really. I mean, it's nice. It's, it, I think the nominations are more important because you're nominated by your peers. You win on an emotional basis, or you lose on an emotional basis. So, What's the greatest compliment you've ever been paid, whether it be through an award or whatever? Well, there was an old Jew who once gave me $3 and said, I don't have a lot of money. Take it, use it in good health. I love Blazing Saddles so much it kept me, kept me alive all these years. So that, that was really a heartfelt award, and $3 can buy an awful lot of raisinets. You know what raisinets are? No, I don't. They're chocolate-covered raisins, right. and you eat them while you watch movies. Mm -hmm. And they're very nice. They come in little boxes. If you shake the box a lot, somebody behind you will say, stop shaking your raisinets. That's, that's what raisinets are. Thank you for that. Um, are you quite careful about your diet and your health and everything else because of the amount of stress on you, because of the work you do? My wife is. She's... Uh, She's up on all that stuff. She reads all the, the latest literature on cholesterol and circulation and uh, stress and what have you. And uh, so she keeps me more or less at, at a good weight. And uh, I haven't eaten a good thing in about 20 years now. I mean, I haven't eaten a good rich steak or, or a chocolate cream pie or anything that I love. I just, I eat, I eat made up foods. Mm. I don't know what they are, but they have no cholesterol. They taste like cardboard. Maybe they are cardboard. <laughs> but I've, I haven't eaten a nice thing. You know? Anyway, I'm alive. What for, I don't know. I mean, I thought I'd, I'd live to eat a chocolate cream pie. Now now they've taken that away. But do you still live as fast as ever and can, are continuing to do so? I owe money. I owe money to a lot of people. A lot of people wait. Wait for me. And the minute they see me, they say, Mel, you owe me money. And they start after me. And I run. And I do two miles a day ahead of these bill collectors. None of them can catch me. I'm like a rabbit. And uh, so it's the bill collectors that are keeping me alive. Have you ever thought of what you might have done if you hadn't been a film director, writer, producer, whatever? Well, you know, I have secret dreams of what, you know, people dream. Poor, poor kids dream. They dream of being king, you know. I'll be the king. I'll be the, I don't want to be the king. You've been in Hollywood, you, you, are, the, you are the king. It's You're a lousy job. Comedy. It's a lousy job being king. Everybody expects you 
to behave royally, everybody wants favors from you. Everybody wants something from the king. Everybody wants to manipulate the king, control the king. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure around me because I'm the king. There's a lot of non-relaxed people around me. Oftentimes, I have dreamed of being in a very simple, clear service position. I'm not kidding. I think sometimes if I could have been, I have some gifts. I mean, small, everyday human gifts. I could be a good waiter. I could discuss what's on the menu with relish, with, with even a bit of saliva drooling from the sides of my mouth. I could explain what the best thing is to eat. I could bring it like I would want it, hot Where and covered. Where did you get your sense of humor from? I don't know. I think I got my sense of humor. I don't know. It's a gift. I was born with it. When I came out of my mother at a very young age, like three minutes, everybody laughed. Why? Everybody, the nurses left, the doctors left. They've never stopped. They said, it's the funniest looking kid I've ever seen. This is a funny baby. And I have been a funny baby ever since. I don't know. It's just uh, God says to somebody, you worry, you be funny. And that's I'm take, getting you back to being a Jewish waiter. You worry, you be funny. That is a Jewish waiter. Jewish waiters have the greatest sense of humor. That uh, I said to a Jewish waiter at Ratner's restaurant on 2nd Avenue, where they serve food that is so Jewish, nobody can pronounce it, nobody can eat it. And, and I said to my waiter, I said to a waiter passing, excuse me, what time is it? He said, you're not my table. That's, he wouldn't give me the time because I wasn't his table. Have you ever worried about losing your sense of humor, just, just going one day? I don't know, but you know, that's a, it's a, that's a very good idea for a... Uh, for, uh, for a screenplay, it really is. That one. Now wait a minute. It's the story of a hype, a high-powered comic, who suddenly, no matter what he does, he, he can't make people laugh anymore. He kind of lost and his he rhythm. And he doesn't. He's already. lost it. And then through some kind of magical uh, catalyst, either a, a love, a woman, or or uh, a child. I mean, he gets. That's a good. That's a good movie. You just came up with a good idea. For, yes. Uh, Losing laughter, losing laughs, no laughs. What, what no laughing mean? matter. Okay, we got the title. No laughing matter. What sort of things do you worry about, though? I worry about things that nobody else knows. I worry about uh, having a sip of orange juice, turning away and speaking to somebody. Unbeknownst to me, there's a fruit fly or a little bug that goes into my orange juice. I don't see it. It drowns immediately. It goes to the bottom of my juice. I quaff my juice down. I don't know it's there. And I've and I've and I've drunk down a bug, and I worry about things like that because I can't see everything. I don't know. There might be. It might be. It might have been a bug of some kind at the bottom of my juice this morning. What about the future? What, what do you worry about that? And how your life is going to progress from here on? I know I'm going to die, and it really depresses me at certain dead times. I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. How would you I'm like to die? Well, I'd like. I really would like to die in the back of a car, going somewhere. I probably will. It's like, isn't that a funeral? No, that's when you're dead already. Wait a minute. That's when you're dead already. That's right. No, that's in the back of a hearse. Now, I really would like to die in the back of a car on my way to perform somewhere and to be loved so much that they throw the dead body on stage and I get applause and laughs anyway. I know it sounds macabre, but not for me. And they said, where would you like to be buried? I said, fill me with formaldehyde and stick me under the kitchen table. 
and just let me lie there so I can maybe if maybe if there's a little bit of life after that I can hear people eating and talking you know seriously what plans and hopes do you have for the future as far as you your wife and your child Sorry. well I, I intend I intend to continue to expand my company Brooks films I've made a deal with Canal plus which is a very important European um, vid do you know do you know HBO in America yeah, yeah. well Canal plus is, is HBO in France yeah. they have many subscribers and they have the most and the best cable outlets and they're in Germany they're in France they're in Spain and they support me in, in, a, in a wonderful way they are my international partners the symbiosis is wonderful they want new viewers new subscribers and they need kind of uh, flashy exciting important films and I do very well for them I do very well in Europe my films do very well so they will give me 40% of all the money I need to develop and to make my films now in the United States my money will either come from MGM or Fox or Columbia and they will put up 60% and it's a great it's a way for me to expand my operations and make more Brooks films I have a new one called The Vagrant and it will be out in October or January depends on how we uh, we get it ready probably when you say October January it means it'll probably come out in November The Vagrant with Bill Paxton uh, directed by Chris Whalers. It's a horror film about a vagrant who haunts a yuppie. It's hysterically funny and very horrible. It's disgusting and funny. I can't describe it any other way. It's going to be a big hit. What about more personally, though? Tell me about your hopes for your son. Well, I, ho I hope that my son Max will continue his college education and not get into the swim of, uh, of, of the Hollywood uh, uh, emotional syndrome, you know, hit failure, success, you know, that, that, he doesn't need that. He needs to keep his, his, his eye on the future and, and be a happy youth. I hope that slowly but surely he will enter my profession as a writer-director. Would you like to see him yes, assume your mantle? I would, mm. I would, but it's okay. Yesterday, uh, I'm walking around London, I saw an incredible sight. I saw a man in a black outfit with a black high hat and next to him a little boy in a black outfit with a black high hat and I asked what they did and somebody said that man is a chimney sweep and that is his son who is an apprentice chimney sweep and I said gee if I were a chimney sweep I'd like to walk around with my son Max like that in the same outfit it would be great mm -hmm. maybe it's a sense of immortality or continuity but it's a great feeling to see father and son by the way I saw a great sign in, in, um, on the freeway the other day it said Gorwitz and daughters. I've never seen that before. Yeah, Gorwitz and daughters, Gorwitz. instead of instead oh, right. of yeah, Finkel yeah. and Wainwright Sons. Wainwright and daughter. Wainwright and daughter. I like to see daughter. I have a daughter. I like I like to see that. Right. That's very nice. Would you, finally, do you think that you and your wife will ever retire, or do you think you'll always be working? I think we'll die. You know, more or less in the saddle, riding into the future. I mean, we will. Uh, Ethel Barrymore acted until she was 87 or something. I mean, you know. I'm sure my wife will continue to act until she's a grand old lady, because you need you need good actresses, you need good older actresses, and and Hitchcock directed movies when he was arthritic and and very ill from the back of his limo. So that's what you find you know, today. So I I think that's why yeah maybe that's why I said I'd like to die in the back of the car. It means I'd still be working, directing from my limo. Action cut. All right, Mr. Brooks, would you like to? Mr. Brooks, would you care? Mr. Brooks, we're breaking for. 
Mr. Brooks? Mr. Brooks? Harry, come over here. Sid, come here. Is he, what is he, kidding? Kidding my ass, he's dead. Oh my God, how are we, we going to tell the studio? I don't know. Just tell him he's dead. Tell him the truth. What can we tell him? They'll find out soon enough. He'll begin to smell. All right, get him out of the car. Get him out of the car. All right. That's what's going to happen. That's why I'm going to die.